You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of the Site Bites Podcast, Canyon of Contention, where we go in-depth on prominent archaeological landscapes. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by this season's featured co-host, Robert Weiner. For the topic of this episode, Chaco After Chaco, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Stephen Lexon with us as our guest. Dr. Lexon, thank you so much for joining us today, and how are you doing? I'm doing fine, and thank you for having me. Well, we are just so happy to have you here and look forward to a, a great discussion. We wanted to start off just by asking about your both your personal and your professional connections to Chaco Canyon. So what drew you there in the first place, and how did you start working on Chaco? Once I decided to be a southwestern archaeologist, which I made that decision based on landscape and skies and aridity and not so much on knowing anything about the archaeology because I didn't. But in the early 70s, I decided I'd work in the southwest. And in some ways, I was pushed this way. I'm not kicking particularly. I, I liked it. But I decided I'd educate myself about it and read and talked for a few years. I read what I could get my hands on. It became fairly clear. There's three areas in the southwest that in the old terminology, you had Anasazi up north, which is now Ancestral Pueblo. Maguillon down south in southern New Mexico and Hoacom in Arizona. And I wanted to do something in each of those areas that would be useful and I might as well have fun. So in the early 1970s, uh, the three most glamorous places, I suppose, were Chaco up north and Membris down south and then classic period Hoacom in the Phoenix area. So reading up on Chaco in the early 70s, a textbook of the time was... Paul Martin and Fred Plogg's Archaeology of Arizona said that, you know, it's obvious that Chaco is really important. It's too bad we don't know much about it. <laughs> this is in 73. All right. Also reprinted in 73 was Gordon Vivian's Ken Klutzel report, which included a, a really outstanding synthesis of Chaco work up to that point, up to 64 when he first wrote it. So I got hold of both of those. I can't remember whether I bought them or borrowed them or whatever read up on chocolate and said, yeah, I'd like to work there. That's easier said than done because, you know, I'm a, at this point, I'm still, I think, an undergraduate. And so I had to kind of sneak up on it. First, I guess this would be in, you know, 74, I took a job with Cynthia and Williams working at Salmon Ruins, which isn't Chaco, but it was a Chaco site, flipping shirts, being a, a ceramic analyst, which was not my metier. I was a field guy at that time. But, I, you know, I had to take the, the job that was available. I did that for a couple of years and then got hired on for the Chaco Project, National Park Service Chaco Project, which is a big multi-year project that I worked on from 76 to 86. I kind of snuck up on that one, too, and had some inside help getting hired there. You don't need to go into that. It involves some nepotism. So, yeah, I wanted to work at Chaco because it was pretty obvious that it was important. I mean, people sometimes accuse me of promoting Chaco as important because I worked there. No, I worked there because it was obviously important if you had half a brain. Even in the early 70s and all the work that's been done since is, yeah, I mean, Chaco is a central to the prehistory of the northern half of the southwest, the ancestral Pueblo area. Excellent. So you recognize the importance of Chaco early on. What what inspired you to become an archaeologist, Dr. Lexon? Could you talk to us about, like, you know, why did you want to become an archaeologist? Where, where did you go to school and where did you end up after obtaining your Ph.D.? Well, my father was in the Army. In high school age, I spent three years in Naples, Italy. And, you know, we went to Pompeii a lot and Herculaneum and 
Kuma and paste them in all those kinds of places. And of course, traveled around Rome and got to Greece and saw ruins there. And I, I wanted to be a classical archaeologist. So a couple of years later, when I made it to college, I told the guy, the sort of triage advisor who met, you know, incoming freshmen, I wanted to be a classical archaeologist. And he said, no, you couldn't do that. I think he, he looked at where I graduated from high school, which is Biloxi, Mississippi. I was only there one year, but I think he probably looked at that and said, no, this is a yokel. You can't do that. And I said, well, I'd like to be an archaeologist. So well, why don't you go over to anthropology? They dig Indian mounds. And I, anthropology? I didn't know nothing about that. And Indian mounds? Why would you want to do that? But I got shunted over into anthropological archaeology, and yeah, they were trying to train me up to be an uh, archaeologist in the southeast, which is a very, very interesting area in the lower Mississippi Valley. But I, that's where I'd grown up. Uh, when we were in the United States, it was mostly in the southeast, and it was extremely hot and humid and buggy, and the snakes that you had to worry about didn't all rattle. High density of rednecks. So I got to come out to the New Mexico where I'd never been for one January on a university quick field season with some professor and I liked it. It was arid, you know, at night you could see the Milky Way, plenty of interesting rednecks, but at low, much lower densities and decided I'd be a Southwestern archeologist, not knowing anything about the Southwest. That's great. We've heard it from a few people today, just how, you know, compelling the, the landscape of Chaco is. And, and of course the, the clear skies as well. So cool to hear that and, and what brought you to this area. Chaco archaeology is, of course, I wasn't around in the 70s, but it was very different then than it is now. What would you say throughout your career has been the biggest change in understandings of Chaco and its and its larger region? Recognizing it had a region. In the 70s, people were aware of sites that had, you know, I'm putting air quotes here that you can't see, you know, Chaco and characteristics, you know, some hundreds of miles away from from Chaco, and that was noted as sort of an interesting anomaly. But really, the work during the outlaw, great outlier hunts in the mid-70s and the Bureau of Land Management road studies really established that, that you know, Chaco was the center of a region, and a sizable region with a whole lot of people in it. That certainly was not there, uh, that understanding was not there when I started off in the 70s. And I, I honestly don't believe that there are many archaeologists who had an inkling of that, you know, how big it was going to be. And uh, over the years, it's just been, yeah, uh, sort of piled on and piled on and piled on. That, yeah, there's a big Chocolate region and Chalk was the center of it. And you were involved in some early work with the outliers, like, for example, at Pierre's Complex. Tell us what that was like, your personal experience of being on the ground and looking at these sites beyond the canyon and, and recognizing that. Wow, this is something big. There are two concurrent projects looking at, at outliers and looking at the, the larger landscape. I was working on one with the National Park Service with Bob Powers and Bill Gillespie. At almost the same time, there was a very forward-looking project being sponsored by the Public Service Company of New Mexico, you know, the state's power company, where there was some thought that there was going to be extensive coal mining, strippable coal out in, in Chaco. And they had a, a staff archaeologist who, you know, got him rich loose, who convinced them to field a, a crew to see what's out there before, you know, before you know, these large scale landscape modifications might happen. They, those never happened, but they subsequently followed up with you know, fracking and stuff today. And so, you know, so there are two teams are out there, each of, you know, about three guys 
the other group was John Stein and, and uh, Mike Marshall and Rich Blues. And, you know, we, we shared information and visited each other's sites and stuff, but we put a lot of dots on the map. And some dots we already knew about, like Pierre's site, which had been discovered by, well, you know, the local Navajo people knew about it, but but archaeologically it was discovered by Pierre Morandon, who had been an archaeologist working with Cynthia R. Williams, just like I did Salmon Runes, who was studying the roads. And so, we got, you know, it was Pierre's site. And so we targeted that. We targeted Peach Springs, uh, we being the National Park Service people, uh, targeted Pierre's. Peach Springs and one other I've forgotten right now to do some fairly detailed work on. And then we just, we had an old government carryall and we beat the crap out of it driving back and forth across the San Juan Basin at the same time that the other group, the PNM group, was beating up their vehicles driving back and forth across the San Juan Basin and beyond. Part of what we were doing and part of what they were doing too is looking at the literature. Because once you had been on a number of these things, there's certain commonalities or you have a big bump and, you know, usually a, a great big hole in the ground for a great kiva. The big bump is a great house and usually berms and roads and, you know, those kinds of earthwork features and then a surrounding community of little unit pueblos. Uh, once you start reading literature, you know, ah, that pattern kept popping up. But even back into the 19th century literature for Southwest Colorado, for example. And we didn't get to visit all those sites, but we put more dots on the map of places where people might look. And over the years, people have gone and looked. You know, the work continued. You know, we were running out there for a year, as was PNM, but, but people like Stein and, and Marshall and other organizations and other P individuals you know, kept going to those dots on the map and documenting what was out there. You know, I was still involved with this. I, I actually looked this up, so I thought you might ask that they. I worked on the sort of northwesternmost Chaco sites uh, when, when I was working at Bluff Great House and the northeasternmost at Chimney Rock in 2009. And uh, in 2007, I got to go to what, as far as I know, is the southeasternmost, you know, the southernmost and southeasternmost, which is a site that was named years ago, <laughs> not by me, Camelot on the San Augustine. And it's a, a great house right on the edges of the plains of San Augustine. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, it's, it it's, it's, uh, was an interesting line of uh, research because you could do a lot of it without sticking shovels in the ground or, or disturbing anything. You just go out and look at these things. And you could see the big bump and the big hole in the ground and the berms and all that kind of stuff. And go, oh, yeah, there's another one. Yeah, absolutely. Now, any of these experiences that you just reflected on, were these at any point part of your, your graduate work? And where'd you go to grad school? My graduate work was broken up by real work. I, I got a master's degree from Eastern New Mexico University while I was working for Cynthia Arn Williams at Salmon Ruins because that project was running out of Eastern. And I realized that I had a bunch of graduate credits from my undergraduate days that were transferable. And I could <laughs> basically take a few classes and, and write a thesis on a project I'd done before in the, in the members area, um, Southern New Mexico. So I got a master's there. And then when I was working at the Chaco Center for the Park Service, we were on the second floor of the anthropology department at the University of New Mexico. And I had the same realization that, that uh, hey, you know, I'm, I'm UN, technically I'm UNM staff. I can take free courses. You know, I can transfer a bunch of this graduate credit here. So I got my PhD at UNM while I was working for the Park Service which helped, was, was helpful for the Park Service, too, in some ways, because they could, they could pay me out of a different set of monies that helped them on, on their bottom line in terms of getting this big project dealt with financially. So I would guess most of the outlier work was done before I 
jumped on board for the PhD program, but we kept, you know, we kept going out and looking right through when I was in the PhD program, you know, because I was still working for the Park Service. I was still going out to Chaco and doing this and that. I want to return back to the discussion of that characteristic signature of outliers where you talked about a big bump or a great house surrounded by a smaller community of sites. I would say, you know, one of the major impacts of your work within Chaco Research and Southwestern Archaeology has been discussions of inequality and the idea that, you know, Chaco was so connected that there were elites, which for a long time people were very resistant to, and some people still, you know, would certainly question those ideas. So what led you, you know, seeing that pattern of the small sites next to the great houses, what led you to develop your views on inequality and, and complexity in the Chacoan past? I was actually back in the canyon. I did a lot of work on the architecture of the great houses at Chaco Canyon, part because nobody else was doing it in the, in the Chaco project. And I said, hey, we need to do this. And my boss was very, very supportive. So I, I got to crawl all over the, the great houses out there and do a lot of dendrochronological work and, and architectural analysis, stuff like that. Okay, so you, you, you spend a lot of time at Pueblo Benito or Chetricettle. I did a lot of work at Chetricettle and, and, you know, the other big, really big bumps at Chaco. And then you just walk across the canyon from Benito and there's what they call the BC sites, which is, has nothing to do with before Christ. It's just a geographic uh, record keeping. And they're quadrangle B, you know, C stands for Chaco and 50 and 51 are the 50th. 50th and the 51st sites in a sequence that had been excavated years prior to that by the University of New Mexico. And you look at those little guys, and that's what 90% of the people were living in in uh, the 11th century were these little, they call them unit pueblos. And they're exactly contemporary, and they were contemporary with Polo Benito and these great big buildings. I mean, the, the differences in scale are not subtle, they're real obvious. When you could take the whole floor area of a regular family house and put it in one room at Pueblo Benito and, you know, the differences in the, the labor invested in the architecture and all that kind of stuff. It's not a subtle thing. It's side the head obvious. And previous, and it's the basic question of Chaco Canyons. What the hell is going on with these great houses? Because, you know, the, the rest of the archaeology of Chaco looks like everywhere else in the southwest, in the northern southwest at that time, 11th century, 12th century. In the past, that had been explained as two different ethnicities. They had one ethnicity in the great houses and another ethnicity in these small sites and these unit pueblos. And that, that kind of got it right. It is two different kinds of people, but the really obvious explanation is two different classes of people. Is you know the rest the rest of the artifactual repertoires in the two sites are using the same pottery. They're doing you know using the same chipstone in different quantities, different qualities. But but there's you know nothing really obviously different about what's going on with the people on those levels, except that they're living in these enormous houses, these palaces, and everybody else isn't. So, yeah, uh, the inequality part is really obvious in Chaco when people ask me, you know, it's an archaeologist ask me, where's your evidence? I said, well, you know, walk around Pueblo Benito for half an hour, walk across the bridge and look at the BC sites. And if you don't see it, you probably should turn in your archaeology badge. Well, all right. Well, I think uh, I'm not going to turn in my archaeology badge quite yet, but we will turn in segment one of episode four with Dr. Steve Lexen. Stay tuned after these messages as we return to today's content. Welcome back to episode four, season one of Site Bites podcast. We are here with Dr. Steve Lexen. And yeah, Rob, why don't you go ahead and take it from here? 
Great, Carlton. We've learned a lot about Chaco so far. I just wanted to recap some of the main points that have been hit. We've talked about Chaco's geographical setting, the harsh environment there. We've heard different perspectives about how agriculturally productive Chaco may have been, how many people may have lived there, whether great houses were large residential units or something more like palaces or temples. We've talked about Mesoamerican influence in Chaco with these striking imported goods such as macaws and cacao and the impact those must have had within Chacoan society as prestige goods or ritual objects. Furthermore, we've talked about this surrounding region of sites tied to Chaco Canyon with the very characteristic, iconic great house architecture, roads, earthworks that suggest to many archaeologists some kind of a unified region. So now that we've established all of that, we're going to look at what was Chaco's lasting impact in the Southwest. So what happened after its heyday as the center of influence throughout this ancient Four Corners world? So, Steve, what we want to ask next is what, you know, for a long time, there was this narrative of the disappearing Anasazi or the sort of end of Chaco Canyon. Tell us about when Chaco's influence waned and how we can see its impact continuing at at sites after the end of construction in Chaco Canyon. Well, the last major construction at Chaco is about 1120, 1125, something like that from the tree ring dates. And actually in the early 12th century, the, the early 1100s, they're, they're building like crazy there. They're building all these buildings that don't even seem to be used, sort of warehouse-like things. So, you know, it's rolling along. It doesn't end. I mean, it does end in terms of construction, but what happens is it moves and it moves before 1125. They decide to relocate to the north about 60 miles, first at Salmon Ruins in the 1070s. Okay, this is, a, you know, the height of Chaco. They're starting to think about this. They, they, they build buildings up there to check it out, up there being on the San Juan River. And it, Salmon doesn't work out very well because the San Juan River is kind of a rough river. Right? You couldn't do much with it until Navajo Dam got built uh, and it floods. So they moved north a few more miles to the Animus River, Animus Perdidos, which is a nice little creek that they could handle. And starting about 1100, they're building, beginning to build small great houses, starter kit great houses at Aztec. And Aztec ruins is a, it's a national monument that, you know, you have to always put the disclaimer in there that, that you know, the Aztec is a misnomer from early settlers. Although actually the, the Mexican authorities and the Spanish authorities called it that too. And the, the whole thing really gets going about 1110, to, you know, 1110, they start really building uh, big buildings at Aztec. And this is, you know, before the end of construction at Chaco, they're still building in Chaco in the, you know, 11, early 1120s. So this is going while Chaco's still going strong. It's not a, a watered down Chaco. It may be a reduced Chaco in terms of, of scale, but, the first building they built at Aztec Ruins is the single biggest construction event I'm aware of in, in Chaco. It's called West Ruin, and it isn't as big as Pueblo Benito, but it took them a few centuries to build Pueblo Benito. They put West Ruin up in about 10 years, probably significantly less than 10 years. So this is Chaco, and it can still really organize labor, organize the logistics, get all these beams, you know, thousands and thousands of beams. They need to get all this stuff together and then get the damn thing built. So the, the capital appears to shift and they quit using 
the great houses in, in Chaco, they quit adding to them. And the energy and the activity, and I think the people, especially the, the nobles, the, the elites, moved north and moved the capital to where they should have built it in the first place, which is on the Animus. So you have this nice supply of water, wood and trees and game and all that kind of stuff that they didn't have a Chaco. And then that gets rolling. That gets rolling and, you know, they're, they're building up speed. This starts about 1100, right? And you're building up speed and doing all this construction and stuff. And then they get hit with a great big drought. I think that's about 1130. Really nasty one uh, that lasts for decades. And, and that really affects the economy and the societies in Aztec's re- region, because it's the center of a region, too. It's a, it inherits the region from Chaco, or some of it at least. But they don't stop building at the capital. This drought, which is devastating everywhere else, they, they keep building new buildings and you know, adding on and adding on. Now, there's about three really major great houses up there and you know, some pretty significant secondary you know, minor great houses. So, yeah, I mean, Chaco continues as Aztec. And when I, when I talk about Chaco, I'm talking about the Chaco and Polity, which was based at Chaco for a while, but then moved north to Aztec. And when Aztec finally goes down, it does go down. You know, Chaco didn't collapse. Chaco shifted. But, but the, the subsequent capital, the successor capital, when it ends is when tens of thousands of people leave its region and leave the Four Corners. And this really is a, a collapse in the sense that a certain kind of civilization ends, a very particular political system ends. You know, the people don't disappear. It's not like they beam them up into starships or something, but they move down where they vote with their feet and they leave that region and they reinvent themselves as Pueblo people. Yeah, there are already Pueblo people on the Rio Grande and, and Hopi and Zuni and Acoma and places like that. And most of these people join them or go even further south, actually, and, and you know, eventually settle back in with what are the modern Pueblo, uh, Pueblos of today. And in doing this, they, they reject the nobles. They, they turn their backs on that. They, you know, they actually, Pueblo people remember this in their, in their stories. So do Navajo people who live out there today. But in, in one of the Pueblo stories about this, they have a ceremony of forgetting. And they're, they're just not going to do that anymore. They had the nobles. They, they've been through that. It was great for a while. And then the wheels fell off. There's a drought. There's violence, a lot of, you know, nasty violence. And everybody, everybody leaves the four corners. So the, the continuing political system of Chaco moves south, I think, into Chihuahua. And the nobles probably say, okay, fine, we're nobles. That's what we do. You guys don't want us anymore. We'll go south where they, you know, there's people like us. There's other noble families. But in the Pueblos, and I'm getting this from talking to lots of Pueblo people, I think Chaco's remembered as something that went terribly wrong. And it's not something they want to do anymore. So it, it continues to have an effect. It's part of their history. It's part of their heritage, but they don't do that anymore. Well, it's a fascinating story, and, and I I agree with you. The archaeological signature is is just so clear that after that 1300s depopulation of the Four Corners, there was a complete societal transformation. And there's a big story there, and 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 I really appreciate the way that you've brought it out in print and in your writings. So one aspect of it I want to follow up on is you talked about Aztec following Chaco as a political capital and then things shifting down to Paquime in Chihuahua. All three of those sites are on a single north-south line. Tell us about how that dawned on you and, and what you think the significance is. The relocation of the capital from Chaco to Aztec did proceed you know, pretty much straight north with a couple of dog legs where you know train got in the way 
And it's not any mystery as to how they could do that. I mean, you know, you can do that with a piece of string and a, and a rock and just a question of how much time you want to put into it. You can, you can find north fairly easily. It just take a little while to get 60 miles, just prolong a line 60 miles north. It's not like they knew what, what uh, longitude they were on when they got the Aztec and said, oh, we're due north of Chaco. And, you know, nobody had tools to do that until the 19th century or late 18th century. So you have to start off at Chaco and move north to Aztec. And we know they did that because they left the Great North Road, uh, which is a complicated monument, linear monument. We call it a road. And, part, and it was certainly traveled on, but there's more to it than that. It links Chaco to Aztec, I'm pretty sure. I mean, there's some parts of it that are missing and parts of it that have been erased by well pads and pipelines and stuff like that. But they were linking the second capital back to the first capital. And it was a lesson in history, right? History on the ground. That B is connected back to A, that, that Aztec is legitimate because it physically is linked back to Chaco. And lots of people had to build that road and learn that lesson. I mean, it's a, a, a monumental construction, a modestly monumental construction. So there's a lot of people involved in building it, maintaining it, and knowing what it meant. In terms of what it meant to them, you'd have to ask them. I'm bringing out the Ouija board, but but I think you know it was at least part to going north because north's the only direction you really got. Uh, their leadership at Chaco is sort of taking north and making it theirs. So yeah, Chaco moves north to Aztec, and there's a really strong evidence on the ground, literally the the North Road. And then, right, you know, it goes bing, bang, boom, where, you know, it goes Chaco. This is from the tree ring dates. It goes Chaco, Aztec, the end, the, you know, the, the collapse of that political system. And then it pops up again, due south at Pakime, which is a long way. That's a, that's a long pole over a little bit of rough country. But you could do it if you wanted to. And the question is, why would you want to? It's just a question of time and knowing, knowing how to do it. Again, it's, there's nothing mysterious about it. It's pretty easy to do. This question of time and repeated shots. I, th I think again, you know, they're they're using north, you know, north and its opposite south as axis Monday is the wrong term because that, that goes vertically, but a, a horizontal linchpin for their or longitude for showing the continuity of their political systems. And you know, this happens in other parts of the world, not necessarily directionally, but but where you link political systems on the ground with monuments. For what it's worth. In the Southwest, the archaeologists use a chronological system, a way, way of breaking up time. It was developed in the 20s in, oh, I don't know, six different periods. And they, they, they work. We still use them because it, uh, time, those time periods are sufficiently different in terms of their architecture, the pottery, stuff like that. For every one of those time periods, going back to 500 AD, you know, going back to 500 AD, long before Chaco, every one of the, those periods, the biggest strangest that's you know that's a value judgment but i can defend it most important same thing i can defend that certainly most impressive sites of each one of those periods is on that north south line so you know i think it has deep antiquity and it really meant something by the time Chaco finally used it it really really meant something now this orientation that you've been describing in, in between aztec Chaco, and then that other one in Chihuahua, Mexico, is it? Pakime. Pakime, yeah. Is this this is what you've described as the Chaco Meridian, correct? Yeah, because it's, it's roughly on a meridian. I mean, a meridian is a infinitely narrow line, and all this is happening in a, a say a zone that's a couple of kilometers wide. But I mean, these guys are doing their their surveying with again with a piece of string and a rock, so we shouldn't expect preternatural precision. <laughs> Absolutely. And and just kind of like tying back into your 
descriptions before about how, you know, capitals change and there's relations in ar- architecture and just like what comes to mind is thinking about like Rome and then Constantinople in which there is that shift in, in political power. And that's just background as we we see this all over the world through time and space, not just Rome and Constantinople and Aztec and Chaco. The Chinese did it a lot. You know, they moved their capitals around on fairly esoteric principles. And I think it's, you know, part of what I love so much about your work and, and has had a big impact on me is, is what we were just discussing, looking beyond the Southwest to try and understand Chaco better. The vision you've described and laid out compelling evidence for about different capitals and nobles and commoners and big histories, I would say is very different from the way Southwestern archaeology is often written, where people are moving because of rainfall and you hear much more about manos and metates than you do about individuals or political systems. So why do you think visions of the ancient Southwest that involve things like political history and capitals like we see elsewhere in the world. Why have those been so rarely conducted in the Southwest? Southwestern archaeology was gravely impacted by its anthropological roots. In the 19th century, the ethnologists ruled the roost. They thought that they were in charge of things intellectually. And that what they were studying in what they called the ethnographic present, which was a sort of a glorified what they thought the Iroquois would be like or what they thought the Pueblo would be like prior to colonization, that that was the endpoint of a f- sort of ahistorical progression from sort of ruder beginnings right up to whatever they, you know, whatever the ethnologists saw, that there wasn't really any history. I mean, this is anthropology. It's a natural history discipline, natural science discipline. And the colonial people... And by this, I mean, you know, 19th century intellectuals in, in New York and Boston didn't think that Indians had any particular history. You know, all these stories that Indians told about migrations and this and that, they just dismissed those as fables. And all the change in the past that the Indians talked about, just dismissed those as fables. So the archaeologists come to the Southwest with the notion that they were their job was to make the archaeology suit the ethnography, the later ethnography of what we thought Pueblos, what white guys thought Pueblos were like you know, in, in 1700 or something, which doesn't lead the past a whole lot of wiggle room to do anything different. <laughs> you know? Again, we're saying, you know, they didn't have a history. And that was the, the assumptions. And it, it fed and it was fed by the Pueblo Mystique that is a marketing tool for Santa Fe. Uh, and this is actually, there's many historical accounts of this, you know, popular cultural history accounts of how Santa Fe manipulated this vision of the Pueblos so they could get people on the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad and uh, the Fred Harvey people and stuff like that to bring tourism to the Southwest. And it worked. It worked. It's still working. I mean, Santa Fe is, you know, a sort of Pueblo theme park. But this had a recursive effect on the archaeology where you know, things in the past had to had to be kind of like Pueblos or congruent with Pueblos or leading logically to Pueblos. And it doesn't leave any room for nobles and commoners, uh, which is interesting because, you know, every agricultural society north of Panama in the 11th century had nobles and commoners. You know, it would be exceptional if the Southwest didn't, which, you know, it's held out as oh, Southwest exceptionalism. Again, it's part of this marketing strategy that, oh, yeah, they never had nobles and commoners. Well, yeah, they did. The archaeology is pretty clear on that. 
Well, it's a fascinating story and a very compelling one, I think. If, if our listeners are interested to read a fuller account of some of the ideas Steve just shared, I would highly recommend his newest book, A Study of Southwestern Archaeology, published by University of Utah Press. And you can take some time to Google that title during this break, and we'll be right back. And welcome back to Site Bites, episode four of season one. We are here with Dr. Steve Lexon talking about Chacoan influences after the peak of, of Chaco itself, in terms of what happened after it stopped new new construction. So, Dr. Lexon, your your ideas on Chaco differ than many people, and so I wanted to know, you know, what inspired you to think about Chaco outside of the Southwestern norm? I got into the Southwest without knowing much about the Southwest, uh, which might seem like a negative, but I think it's a positive. I didn't, I didn't acquire a lot of biases. You know, when I got decided to be a Southwest archeologist, I'd never been to Santa Fe, which probably saved my soul. So I didn't come with a lot of biases because I didn't know much about, about the place. And working at Chaco, I mean, I worked a lot in the members country and then I worked at, at, at Chaco and then back to the members and Hohokam and stuff like that. But working at Chaco, it is fairly clear uh, what was being learned by the Chaco project and Cynthia and Williams projects and some other projects in the, in the late seventies that Chaco didn't fit the mold of the ethnological notion of how Pueblos work, which may or may not be how Pueblos actually work. It's just how white ethnologists think they work. You know, Chaco wasn't comfortable in that. So the the first thing that got me thinking about this was the archeology span itself. You know, when you look at this stuff and I, again, I did the architecture and you have these clear differences in between how the upper half and the the upper 1% and the other 99% lived architecturally. I mean, it's just very clear. And in the, the region, discovering the region and documenting the region and Chaco's centrality to it and how it was it was a city-like, you know, in, in cross-cultural studies of, of cities, Chaco would be a city, small one, but a lot of cities are small. It, none of that fit with the, the prevailing models that archaeologists had in their heads of, you know, the Southwest past. So, you know, I, I tried that at a couple of, conferences and stuff and here, you know, I don't even have a PhD at this point and, and people just roll their eyes and whatever. And, and the second thing was, was the Indians, uh, talking to Indians, you know, working at Chaco, worked with a lot of Navajo guys. That was the local labor force. And, you know, by work, I mean, we took turns on wheelbarrows and pick and shovel and stuff like that, but then you know, we talked too. And the Navajos have some very detailed stories about Chaco, I think in part because they live on that landscape and the landscape is the mnemonic, you know, that you remember what happened at this place and what happened at that place. And, you know, I think they, they, they have a lot of knowledge, direct or indirect, about Chaco. And they didn't remember it as a very happy place at all. Uh, in one discussion with a Navajo man who you know, was from a clan there, a very well-educated guy, they, he talked about how they had a king at Chaco who enslaved everybody. Uh, and I, I said, well, that's interesting. Is there really a Navajo word for king? He said, no, but, you know, that's who the, what this guy was. And then I was working at Museum of Indian Arts and Culture in, in the 1990s, early 1990s. And I, I worked a lot of Pueblo people, uh, artists and poets and, you know, historians and writers and folks like that. And uh, we were working on the exhibit there. And I had worked in Membris and I worked at Chaco. And those are the two big ticket items for New Mexico. This is New Mexico Museum. So. As the archaeologist on the design team, I wanted to have a lot of members, a lot of Chaco, because that's what people who visit the museum wanted to see. And the Rio Grande Pueblo guys that we worked with, and many, many different Pueblos, again and again would say, yeah, we know all about Chaco. We don't talk about it. Bad things happened out there. 
And, you know, that, that got me thinking that, okay, you know, something's, something happened to Chaco that was outside the lines for a modern Pueblo or ethnographic Pueblo. And Pueblos do know about you remember Chaco and, and they don't trot it out. They don't want to, you know, it's not something you talk about because it wasn't a, it wasn't a positive thing. I mean, it, it would help them on their road to becoming who they are today, but the experience itself was, was uh, not positive, even though it was a wonderful place. It was like the Emerald City of Oz, you know, they had all this parrots and turquoise and, you know, it was a glittery place, but it ended ended badly. And I guess the final thing is, you know, I'm, I'm listening to these Indian people, these Pueblo people, Navajo people, and looking at the archaeology and wondering, you know, why can't other people see this? Why can't other archaeologists see this? That You know, Chaco is a ringer. It's not something that, you know, we're prepared to, to grasp unless we go outside of the Southwest. And, you know, I, I finally realized that we were, we were working with the wrong tools, that the way most of the Southwestern archaeologists were trained is they were very much trained in Pueblo ethnology and, you know, given this, uh, antiqu- to my mind, antiquated anthropological approach to dealing with the past, which is, you know, the big question is where did the Pueblos come from? I mean, that was literally the, the big question on, on PhD qualifying exams, stuff like that. You know, how do you account for the Pueblos? Which is an interesting question, but it may, it may be not relevant to Chaco. <laughs> you know, they came through Chaco, but institutions of Chaco and its society are, are not represented in modern Pueblos. The history is and the memory is, but, you know, Chaco is something else. So, you know, I, I started thinking about how people got trained and this sort of ethos in the Southwest, which I call Pueblo Space, which, again, is a construction of Santa Fe and, and Fred Harvey and all the, the flute music and Zen gardeners and, you know, that kind of stuff that is pervasive in the Southwest. And, you know, the third thing was, yeah, realizing that we had the wrong set of tools. We were working with inappropriate tools for understanding Chaco. So tell us a little more about, you know, what you're describing is much more of a historical approach and, and some of the problems that can come on focusing too much in an anthropological framework. So there's, right, this famous quote, archaeology is anthropology or it is nothing. And yet it seems like in the case of Chaco, what we're seeing is that, you know, archaeology must be something more than anthropology or it is nothing or it's something a little bit off. So how do you see us using the insights and the tools of history to investigate these ancient times without written records? Of course, we have the oral traditions to work with, but tell us about your ideas of of history in the ancient North American past. Well, I'll back up here. The archaeology was allied with history in Europe. Uh, when we brought it over here as part of the colonial package, the colonial view, you know, racist view on, on Native Americans is they didn't have any history. I mean, all these, these people are savages. They didn't have any history as we, we understood it. So they have to be studied in a natural science discipline as specimens. And in the 70s, when I was being trained, that was new archaeology, which is all hyper science. It was sort of funny when you think about it now. It's just people puffing around in lab coats. But they, they thought history was just background noise, that you need to get rid of history to, to you know, do science. And they, they were actually anti, anti-history, which piling that on top of the old anthropological view, uh, ethnological view that, you know, there wasn't much history in, in the new world, made it really rough to think historically. Well, what do I mean by thinking historically? Thinking historically means that change happened, the stuff that happened in the past. And it wasn't all linear change, that you might have something that didn't survive into modern times. You do have you know, call it a collapse, call it whatever. 
you did you did have dead ends. You did have things that you know were experiments that did, that didn't work. It isn't a linear progression from rude beginnings up to Taos, the Pueblo of Taos, or something like that. The main problem I see is sort of deprogramming southwestern archaeology so people admit that there was a history and it's not a history of where the Pueblos came from. I mean, it is, it is that too, but there's a whole lot more to the Southwest than modern Pueblos historically, historically that, you know, there's a thousand years of history where all kinds of stuff happened and we have to figure that out. Figuring that out is not easy. You know, if this were easy, everybody would be doing it. You sort of have to use every trick in the book to reconstruct a history. And it's, it's, it's maybe possible to develop a prehistoriography, not meaning that, nothing derogatory about prehistory in the sense it just means trying to write history without the tools and the, the resources of academic history, the discipline of history, which are mainly written. But you could do it. I mean, the logic's exactly the same, it's just the evidence is different. And you're not going to, you know, know the name of this guy or you're not going to know the motivations that you might get you know, from reading somebody's letters or something like that. It'll be more like historical geography, but at least it'll be historical where up to up to the 1970s, it it wasn't it wasn't historical. It being southwestern archaeology. Another aspect of this approach you've highlighted in your work, which I think is really important for all of us to think about, is that what we consider these bounded cultural units of ancestral Puebloan or Anasazi and Hohokam and Mogollon. You know, the, the standard approach in the Southwest is that, well, I guess these people probably knew about each other, but, the, you know, I do Mogollon and I, I don't really know what's going on up or people know what's going on in the other areas, but they don't see it related to what they're studying. So share with us a little bit about, I mean, your work has spanned these cultural areas. What's the importance for archaeologists, not only in the Southwest, but throughout North America, to know about what's going on outside of their specific region of expertise or interest? I think you could be a decent archaeologist if you had smaller horizons and, you know, specialized in some area, but you shouldn't be writing interpretive stuff, <laughs> you know, to, to really be doing useful interpretive historical stuff. You need to know the whole Southwest and you need to know what's going on in California. You need to know what's going on in Mississippi Valley. You need to know what's going on in West Mexico and the Huasteca. You need to know what's going on in Central Mexico because these are all part of the historical context of what, what you're trying to describe. Like Holcom, you know, I was, I was never a very good Holcom archaeologist, but I went down there and tried to learn. And it's interesting because Holcom is a really dynamic episode in the history of the Southwest. A really amazing things happening down there. And they're happening right before Chaco. I mean, Hoacom reaches its peak right about 900, uh, 1000, and then it collapses back into Phoenix. That's right when Chaco takes off. So it's like punch counterpunch, where Hoacom is is the biggest thing in the Southwest until about you know 900, 1000. Then Chaco explodes, and I don't think that's unrelated. I, I think there's a historical connection there between the rise and de not demise, but the rise and fall of Hoacom and the rise of Chaco and eventual fall. You know, one thing is just a, for instance, here is T-shaped doors, which, you know, are sort of iconic around Mesa Verde and places like, you know, the Four Corners, uh, the you know, ancestral Pueblo area. If you look where T-shaped doors, and they really are, uh, iconic is the right word for them. I mean, even in ancient times, they obviously, they're very, they're highly sim they're symbolically charged. They're in exterior doors where everybody could see them and the doors that open to the outside world. So people approaching a building would see this big T-shaped door. 
they aren't for convenience. I mean, they, again, there's there's a symbolism there that I, I can demonstrate that they're, they're symbolic. I can't tell what it, what it meant, but that T shape is pretty important. They start at Chaco Canyon, and then they sort of, you know, only in the great houses and the biggest buildings. And then they move north to, if you map them through time, they move north to Aztec ruins where they're in all the great houses, but they get democratized. So all the commoners have them now in their exterior doors and walls. And you can see them at Mesa Verde, you can see them, you know, Utah, you see them all over the place. And then after, you know, 1280, when, when Aztec goes down and everybody leaves the Four Corners, T, that T-shape that is so important disappears from the Pueblo area. I mean, there's maybe two or three examples after 1300. And, you know, those are even questionable. Where they reappear is way down south in the, you know, the heart, you know, south of the, the Magallon district at Casas Grandes. And it's subsidiary sites. It's secondary sites. And they're all over the place. There's these huge T-shaped doors and, you know, T-shaped altars and stuff like that. So if you map this out, there'd be a cluster of T-shaped doors around Chaco in the 11th and 12th centuries. And then a cluster at Aztec ruins and, and the whole you know, Aztec's region in the four corners in the, in the, late 12th and 13th centuries, and then dis they disappear and they reappear all over the place in northern Chihuahua in the 14th century and 15th century. So, you know, you, you have to know the archaeology. I mean, it's a really obvious pattern, right? But you have to know know the archaeology to, to see that pattern. So, yeah, you have to you have to think beyond, you know, your valley in the Ancestral Pueblo area or your valley in the, you know, the Membrus Valley in the Mogollon area or whatever. You have to know at least have a passing knowledge of all that stuff, which is, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of stuff to learn. Absolutely. And kind of just for our listeners, really kind of portraying how Dr. Lexon practices what he preached. It's when I uh, got accepted to see you Boulder, you know, my advisor, Dr. Bob Kelly was very happy that I was going to the department of Steve Lexon and, and Kathy Cameron was how he viewed Colorado. And, and I'm a plains archaeologist. And I remember Dr. Lexon, I don't, I don't know if you do. One of my first interactions with you was at Scott Ortman's house for, uh, I think it was like a farewell barbecue for his postdoc who was returning back to England. And, and I was very, very nervous of talking to you. And you had recently just gotten back from Spyro with Dr. Tim Pocketot and I believe Dr. Gerardo Gutierrez. And I was like really excited to talk to you. And I, I work in the Plains and uh, the Mississippian region is very influential in where I work. And I remember, you know, Dr. Lexon, I, I recently heard you just got back from some of these great mound great mound site of Spyro. And like, without missing a beat, you're like, we only call the mounds, they're pyramids and that's just colonial baggage. And we should really get rid of that from our, <laughs> from our lexicon. And just, I was like, Oh yes, exactly. You're absolutely right. And just like trying to awkwardly move, move uh, conversations away. So, and then, you know, you went, you went to this, this site, which is clearly not in New Mexico, it's in uh, Oklahoma and looking at some of these broad regional patterns and also bring back again this this notion of colonial baggage part of the the colonial package as you called it so yeah just kind of like this isn't uh for our listeners dr lexon isn't just talking about the southwest but these views extend beyond just just the southwest and, and chaco yeah well it's funny if uh, native americans had a boat they're all canoes <laughs> even if it's a you know 100 foot long like Viking ship boat, which they had, I mean, not, not with the sails and all that stuff, but these things going up and down the Mississippi river, they're all canoes. And if they, they build a pyramid, it's a mound, <laughs> which Monk's Mound at Cahokia is the biggest pyramid north of, of central Mexico, but it's a mound. <laughs> Again, these are the colonial attitudes that we have to get past. When people, you know, are interested in decolonizing, but I, one of the first things that Southwestern archaeologists have to do is decolonize their brains, you know, their, their methods. Absolutely. And kind of just 
summing this all up, because having having you on is a privilege to have you on this this podcast. You recently retired, and we we just kind of want to know, like, what do you what do you hope your legacy is in in southwestern archaeology or in archaeology as a whole? Uh, well, I did some substantive things in Chaco and in the members' country, which most of that stuff hopefully will probably last. I mean, you know, again, substantive stuff. In terms of the future of southwestern archaeology, the people of my generation, the boomers, it's too late. <laughs> you know, those guys aren't happy with where I'm taking the archaeology at all because it's different than what they learned in the 70s and 80s. So I got my hopes pinned on younger people. I wrote that last book, you know, mainly for folks to come and we'll, we'll see what good, if any, it does. But yeah, and you know, we haven't talked about this, but the 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 integration of of old school archaeology with what native people have to say has certainly improved in the course of my career. And I'm not taking any credit for that, but it's that's a, a hopeful sign as well. Excellent. Well, with that, we just interviewed Dr. Steve Lexin about Chaco's rippling influence in the Southwest after its peak. Thank you so much for listening to the Site Bites podcast, episode four of season one. Be sure to tune in next time when we're joined by Patrick Cruz, who will talk with us about the perspectives on Chaco from descendant indigenous communities. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.